Good morning. This is lesson five in the series, Our God Reigns. We're doing a study in the uh, Gospel of Mark. And I've titled this, Why Jesus Spoke in Miracles, Part One. That leaves me a lot of open territory in the, uh, in the future. Uh, one of the things that you'll see in the text that's before us is that there are really two major questions uh, that are being asked. The first question, and it's the question our Lord answers first, is why are you speaking in parables? You might say, why are you speaking nonstop in parables? Because that is what our Lord Jesus was doing. The second question was, what is the meaning of the parable of the soils? So we're going to divide that those two questions and deal with them separately. I'm not going to deal with the parable of the four soils this lesson, but in our next lesson. But I want to address the question, why is Jesus speaking in parables as he now commences to do in Mark chapter 4? This is sort of going down memory lane for me. It was over 40 years ago that I first preached this message, or I should say a message, on the parable of the soils at Believer's Chapel. It was my first sermon there, uh, and it was somewhere around 43 years ago. I thought I had it under control, and uh, it, it would seem as though all I needed to do was kind of go back and warm up the old notes, microwave them a little bit, and, and whatever, but I, I uh, found that I had some problems. But let me tell you how I explained it then and, uh, and how I'm going to deal with it differently now. I really came to Mark chapter 4 based heavily, and I would say even primarily, on the accusation that is made by the scribes who come from Jerusalem and say, Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. And Jesus says to them, any sin, every sin, every blasphemy that is committed will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That sin will not be forgiven ever. And uh, so coming out of that into chapter 4, when I see Jesus teaching in parables, and I, when the disciples ask him about that, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, I had been inclined to take chapter 3, link it to chapter 4, and say, therefore, the reason why Jesus is speaking in parables is so that the bad boys of chapter 3 would not understand the gospel, would not believe it, would not repent, and would not be forgiven. Sounded good 40-some years ago. I've just got a few problems with that now based on some additional observations. Here they are. The parables seem to be uh, related to the crowds that have gathered in verses 1 and 2. In other words, if I'm going to go for the most direct context, I can't ignore chapter 3, but it's chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that really are the beginning of this uh, section on parables, so it must be directly related to that. 
Notice that Jesus is teaching again by the seashore. There's a very great multitude gathered before him. He has to get into that escape vehicle, the boat, and he launches out uh, into the water to some uh, at some distance, and the crowds sit down on the land. And it says, and he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching and then goes on and gives the parable of the soils uh, in addition to some other parables that are there. Later in the text, which I ex- I've extended the text because I want you to see the whole section on parables, how it begins and how it ends. That's where my attention came. I wouldn't get in so much trouble if I just stopped with the parable of the soils because hopefully you would forget some of the things that I said early on and wouldn't pick up on the inconsistencies with what comes later. But I couldn't do it. So here we are. It's related to the crowd. It is obviously a new phase of our Lord's ministry. It says he does not speak anything to the crowds except by means of parables. Now, I'm not sure how long this goes. It may go for the, for the rest of our Lord's ministry, uh, and there will be reasons for that, but at least it's a new phase of our Lord's ministry. It's the, it's the way in which He teaches, period. Or should I say, it's the way in which He teaches the crowds. And then the disciples, of course, are taught privately. The parables concern The mystery, and I've got mysteries in plural in brackets because in Mark it says the mystery of the kingdom. In Matthew and Luke it says mysteries. And uh, so I just point that out. But it's about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So in the parables he will say the kingdom of God is like, and then he goes on and explains it. That's the context or the content of what Jesus is saying. The parables were used to conceal the truth from the crowds while Jesus taught the meaning of those parables to the disciples, right? So what you have is this this two-circle thing. And if I were really quick on graphics, I'd have done it for you on the screen. But but that was my problem. When I was dealing with that small group of scribes who were accusing Jesus of, of casting out demons through Satan's power, I can't make chapter 4 focus only on that small group because you've got two groups in chapter 4. Those who are the disciples of our Lord and those who are on the outside, the rest, all of them. So there's two different groups. I might as well go ahead and say... The, the the group of the inner circle, the group of the disciples, is not only the twelve, but the rest of those who are part of the inner circle. Luke's gospel in chapter 8 makes it clear that that includes those women who accompanied Jesus and who were involved in, in supporting him. So the parables are meant to conceal from the crowds to reveal to the disciples. And yet... In verse 33 of chapter 4, when we wind this section down, it says Jesus taught the crowds as they were able to understand. In other words, he taught them within the limits of their ability to understand. That doesn't sound to me like absolute concealing. Now it seems to me he's teaching within the boundaries of what they're capable of grasping. And number six. 
the parable of the soils is somehow inextricably uh, intertwined with this whole parabolic system so that you can't understand one without understanding the other. Do you not understand the parable of the soils, he says? Then how will you understand all the parables? So the first parable seems to be the key to later parables, and we'll deal with that in the next message. The parables are about the kingdom of God and its beginnings. Now, I think that's really important, if at least it was for me, to, to latch on to. When he talks about it, he talks about it as the mustard seed and how it begins with this little insignificant seed and grows into something that's vastly bigger. You have the beginnings where the seed is sown and it begins to germinate and come up and the enemy takes uh, tares and, and, and casts the, uh, plants the tares amongst the seed. And again, it's time. It's time that passes that really is a critical element in all of that. And then you remember there's the one where the seed is put, uh, is cast out, it's sown, and the, the, the person who's the farmer, he does his stuff, but whether it's at night or whether it's at daytime, the seed grows and the farmer saying to himself, I don't really know how this works. By the way, one of my good friends that you have recently heard uh, and he may have told you this. If he didn't, then I won't tell you who it was. But he was telling me about uh, 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 an approach to reaching unreached peoples. And he said, we've had incredible success, and, and other groups are asking me to come and explain that success, and I don't have a clue how and why it's working. Isn't that really, isn't that consistent with what the parable is saying? We do these things that are our responsibility, but it's God who brings the growth. That sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. Now, here's one that's really interesting. The parables say nothing about the death or resurrection of Jesus. The parables do not mention the cross. They're talking about the kingdom in generic kind of ways. They're not talking about the cross. Now, if you think about this, very early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is going to explain everything to his disciples. But you get to Matthew 16 and the great confession, and when Jesus then says to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to reject me and crucify me, you know what happens. Peter explodes. We're not going down that trail. So nothing about the cross yet, which is part of the key, I think, to this whole thing. And then Jesus explains the use of his parables by going to Isaiah chapter 6, a text that is familiar to us, a text which speaks about going and speaking to a people, not in order that they may understand, but in order that they may be fuzzy in their thinking, not seeing, not hearing clearly, lest they understand and repent and be forgiven. That's that's that tough text in Isaiah chapter 6. So it leaves me with these tensions. Uh, you know, I sometimes call them the tensions of the text. First, how can the parables permanently conceal the truth when the truth is ultimately to be revealed? See, the first part of the parable section says, I'm telling you these things in parables so that they won't understand. And yet... 
in the end of the parable section, he says, what is hidden is inevitably going to be revealed. So how do you conceal and yet know that it's going to be revealed? It certainly can't be permanently concealed if it is going to be revealed, which is what Jesus says. How can Jesus be concealing the truth from those outside and yet teaching them to the degree that they can understand? How does that happen, that Jesus is concealing something from them and yet he's teaching them to the level of their ability to grasp what he says? Thirdly, how can Jesus explain everything to his disciples and yet they seem clueless up to the death and resurrection of Jesus? In fact, in one of the parallel accounts, Jesus says to his disciples, do you understand all these things? And they answered, yes, yes. And he's thinking, oh, no, you don't. You don't. You don't have a clue what he's saying. They thought they understood everything he said. So how can Jesus explain everything when they don't seem to know anything? That's the the question that you have to grapple with, at least I do. How is the parable of the soils the key to understanding all the parables? I'm off the hook for this message. That one gets set aside. But it is a question that we need to ask. How can Jesus quote from Isaiah 6 and apply it to his teaching in parables? What's the connection between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's prophecy and Jesus' use of parables? So I want to start there. Isaiah 6 is the key to understanding our text. And we need to understand uh, Isaiah's place in history if we are to do that. I had to use Jimmy's chart. This is uh, next frame, please. This is Jim. Hey, he did a great job. By the way, I've got some of those. If any of you want them, uh, I, I can make copies of those for you. This is a great little chart of the Old Testament prophets. Notice the prophets of the northern kingdom on the top for Israel, prophets of Judah on the bottom. But what I want you to see in my nice fine artwork there in red is uh, the, the book of Isaiah and see it comes you know, in the 8th century, so you've got it just before the Assyrians come and sack the northern kingdom of Israel. It's going to be later that the uh, that the Babylonians come and take uh, Jerusalem and, and carry off people from Judah, but it's right at that critical period of time. So Isaiah is stationed in time just a bit before God's judgment begins to rain down upon the nation Israel. So go to the next frame now and we'll take a look. This is very, very uh, quick and and uh, cursory, but when you look at those early chapters that precede Isaiah chapter 6, what you'll see is a very clear and condemning indictment of Israel's sins. And it describes those things about Israel that God loathes. You'll also see the warning of impending judgment, where God is saying, because of these sins, judgment is going to come upon his people. They're going to be punished for those. And yet, in the midst of that, there is the promise of future hope. Now, that's really crucial for our understanding of Isaiah 6. 
there is the promise of future hope that you see not only throughout the early chapters of Isaiah, but throughout the later chapters of Isaiah. Let me stop and say it right here so I don't forget to say it elsewhere. When uh, Isaiah sees the vision of the holiness of God, and then God says to him, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers, being the only guy in the room. And then, you remember, his, his, he's cleansed uh, for the task. Uh, he, and then God says, now you're going to go and you're going to make the, the hearts fat of these people. You're going to dim their eyes and in effect plug their ears so they don't get the message and they don't repent and they're not forgiven. That sounds very permanent. But Isaiah says, how long? Does he not? Isaiah chapter 6. He says, um, how long, verse 11, and he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. In other words, your message is going to be like this until judgment is complete. Now, what Isaiah goes on to say is that after that judgment is complete, God is going to begin his wonderful work of deliverance and salvation. He's going to do this work which is a, a new heaven and a new earth. It's like a new exodus. God's going to do this wonderful thing and it's going to come to pass through Messiah. That's Israel's hope. But that hope does not come to pass until after judgment has been brought upon this sinful people, and that's why Isaiah's message is not to be effective. Isaiah's message is an indictment against Israel's sin. They have been rebuked and warned over and over and over, and God finally says, time's up, judgment's coming, nothing's going to stop it. So Isaiah's preaching is not to bring one last revival to Israel. It's to seal the nation's doom in judgment because it's only after judgment comes that deliverance will come for Israel as well. Now, go to the uh, uh, point C where you will see specifically Assyria mentioned in chapter 8 and I think elsewhere as well. Babylon in chapter 39 these two powers are both specifically named as the instrument by which God is going to execute his judgment upon wicked Israel. Time for, ju for deliverance has passed. Time for judgment has come, and it is certain. So Isaiah is not to deliver them from judgment, but to deliver them to judgment. Restoration then comes after judgment. So, to sum it up, Israel's sins have been revealed. They have been rebuked. Israel has not repented. Warnings have come and gone. And now God says, time's up. Assyria's coming, followed by Babylon. And Isaiah, your message is to proclaim, as it were, an indictment upon these people. So your preaching is not to be perceived, grasped, 
and become the basis of repentance, it is to be, in effect, the basis for the judgment that is to come. Okay, word of warning, a disclaimer for anybody else who interprets the Gospel of Mark. I don't know whether this view is held by anybody, uh, and so you're going to have to just try it on for size. But in my way of thinking, Isaiah 6 has to be the key for understanding what Jesus is saying here and why he is speaking in parables. So try this on for size. Israel has been, at this stage in time, Israel has been brought back to the land. Their restoration was not complete. God has brought this 400-year period of silence. And when it is broken by John the Baptist, his message is of judgment, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's saying is, you better be ready because judgment day is coming. The kingdom of God, although it hasn't been said yet in Jesus' public teaching, the kingdom of God, I'm not sure the word's inaugurated, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it's made possible by the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Is that not true? John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's the atoning work of Christ on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection that is the basis for all of the blessing and the kingdom that is going to flow from that. So the death of Christ must come, and yet it is not mentioned in the parables. And the question, of course, will be why. Neither the crowds nor the disciples were ready to hear about the cross. This is early on. You've got to remember, we're looking at a three-year earthly ministry, three years of teaching. How easy it would have been for Jesus to fire up these crowds, the crowds which have become so thick that people are, are, are fighting to try and touch him. They're, it's so bad that Jesus has to be in a boat to be distant because everybody wants to get their hands on him and get a miracle. Everybody wants that kind of Jesus. Nobody wants a Jesus who's headed for the cross. And that's why in that last week, when the people of Jerusalem finally figure out that Jesus is not going to throw the rascals out as they had hoped and be the miracle man that they hoped for, give us this bread continually, like give us the feeding of the 5,000, do all of this over and over again. When they realized that wasn't the game plan, they checked out and they said, we'll take Barabbas. He's a guy who's closer to our view of Messiah than Jesus is. Because he wants to throw the Romans out. He'll even kill to do it. And we'd help him, I think they would say, if you asked. So, the crowds aren't ready for it. The crowds would, however, make Jesus king by force. Remember Luke 16? Jesus says, men are trying to get into the kingdom. They're trying to get there by force. In John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, Jesus has to leave the crowd behind because they want to make him king by force. They want to inaugurate the kingdom then, based upon what Jesus has said and John the Baptist has said and what Jesus has done. They want a very different kind of kingdom. But it's a crossless kingdom. It's one without the sacrifice 
for sins. So Jesus speaks about his kingdom in veiled language. This is like pouring a little bit of water on the fire. It's just cooling things down. And, and, and it's one thing if Jesus had given this stirring sort of politician, political election speech, and everybody's yelling and, and happy and, and cheering and whatever. But everybody goes out sort of saying, what was that? Well, what is he talking about? And you'll notice that when he talks about it, he talks about it in terms of insignificance. Here's a mustard seed, not a revolution, a mustard seed. And, and somehow this insignificant thing grows into something else. And, 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 and here is this a farmer who sows the seed and it's coming up, but it isn't his doing that makes it grow. It's something mysterious outside of him. So what Jesus is doing is he's sending these guys away saying, hmm, you know, I don't think they're quite so eager to bring the kingdom on because they can't figure out what the kingdom is. But it isn't their kind of kingdom. So it's sort of a, a cool down. And I would suggest, and this is a point you don't have, but if you want to write it in on your notes, let's make it point F. The focus then if it can't be on his teaching, in other words, if the crowds can't say to themselves, I know exactly what Jesus is talking about and how this thing's going down. If they can't say that, what will they focus upon? I would say upon his deeds. And that, my friends, is exactly what Mark is about. Mark doesn't have all the lengthy discourses the other Gospels does. What he does have is an extensive uh, laying out of his miraculous deeds. Isn't that what Patrick was sharing with us this morning? You work your way through the Gospel of Mark and you see all these wondrous deeds. And so how is it that Mark chapter 4 ends? We stopped a little early. But if we were to end Mark chapter 4 as it ends, we would end with this thought in our minds. Who is this then? Even the winds and the waves obey his voice. they got to focus on Jesus and what he's doing because what he's saying at this moment in time is not really crystal clear to them. So in my opinion, when you look at this text and you see the crowds and all the enthusiasm and all the hoopla that's going on and, and, and you could literally strike a match and this thing would explode, Jesus starts speaking in parables, not as clearly as people would like and not saying what they would want. And so it settles things down and it leaves the future more open for continued ministry. Well, let me go on one step further. The bottom line is, that the kingdom of God is brought in by the death of the Lord Jesus, is it not? So as I see it, here's what happens. When you come to Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, God is saying to Isaiah, speak to these people knowing they won't understand, they won't believe, they won't repent, they won't be forgiven, because judgment must come. For God's righteousness to be exhibited, judgment must come upon these people and this generation. And then God's deliverance and salvation is going to follow. I'm suggesting to you that what's going to happen 
in the Gospels is that here is the nation Israel in their disobedience to God. They are ripe for judgment. That's what John the Baptist warns them about. They deserve judgment. The day of atonement, the day on which our Lord Jesus is to die, is the day in which all of Israel's sins are sort of compounded and dealt with. Year after year, in the old system, it had been done by the sacrifice of an animal, but it was never really finished. The only way that salvation can come to Israel is that judgment must come first. And judgment must come first on him. Judgment must come first on Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. So what we see is Jesus is speaking in parables so that neither the disciples nor the crowds will understand the cross is coming. And it leads them down to the end where they still have this fuzzy idea of what the kingdom is about. But when they see that Jesus is about to be rejected and crucified, they walk away. That is what brings about the death of our Lord on the appointed day when Israel's sins must be atoned for. And that great final atonement is the basis for God's blessing and forgiveness. Now, the way I understand Acts chapter 2 then is Peter is basically saying this. Judgment, the judgment, the righteousness of God has been satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross and it is demonstrated through his resurrection from the dead. Believe in him and you will be delivered from judgment that comes upon this generation. And so what I see is 70 A.D. is the alternative. Judgment is due the nation. They, like the Israel of old, is ripe for judgment and it is going to come. Jesus comes and bears that judgment and now the offer is made by Peter and the apostles. You either accept the payment that Christ has made or you accept the judgment that God has said is due. Hey, really, that's the gospel for us, isn't it? The gospel is our sins deserve judgment. Christ has borne the penalty. And if we do not receive the gift of salvation through his atoning work, then the penalty that is due will be the judgment that comes upon all who fail to believe. Okay. Let's talk about some uh, things in uh, conclusion and application. One of the things I see is that our God conceals and reveals in his time. He conceals and he reveals in his time. There is a time to conceal. There is a time to reveal. Now, the critical word that I didn't talk to you about yet is the word mystery. He says, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. When you look at Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul is saying, it's been granted to me and to the apostles 
to reveal, to disclose this mystery. The mystery is that God is going to bring about salvation in such a way that Jews and Gentiles are now reconciled not only to God, but to one another through the church. This is a mystery which was not understood. It was not something that no one had ever heard about. (laughs) They had heard it had just been concealed. So it had been revealed to them in such a way that it wouldn't be clear until the time came. And then all of a sudden, now the apostles come along and say, look, here it is. Now it's revealed. In one sense, you could say the same thing about the death of our Lord. It was revealed, but nobody really put together those texts to understand that Messiah would come and bear the sins of the world and die and then be raised again. It was concealed to be revealed at the proper time. So that's the way I now understand what our Lord Jesus is doing. When you go back and you look at those tensions and you say, well, how can the parables permanently conceal the truth? They don't. The parables were not meant to permanently conceal the truth. They were meant to conceal the truth until the proper time came. That's why he says, nothing's been concealed except to be revealed in the proper time. Now, after the death and resurrection of Christ, the gospel is proclaimed boldly and openly because now people can see what happened. People would have resisted it. Now, this takes me off to weekend events and and to uh, those who say, you know, the day of doom has come or will come on a certain day. Hey, we all know better than that. But don't you understand from our text that God has reasons to conceal those things? Our behavior would be vastly different if we knew the exact day of our Lord's coming. Our behavior would be different. But it doesn't generate faith and obedience. It doesn't create watchfulness in our hearts and our minds if we know. So he's concealed that for a reason. It will be revealed. You know, and, and like the scripture says, everybody's going to see it and know it. Nobody's going to wonder then. Even the unbelievers, every knee will bow and acknowledge that he is Christ. He is Lord. It's going to be revealed. But God de- determines to conceal things because it is not best for them to be revealed at the moment. That's what he did then. And I believe that's what he does throughout all of our lives. I believe there are truths in the Bible that you and I have read over and over again, and somehow they've just kind of gone over our head, and then some circumstance in life comes along, and all of a sudden God turns on the light, and you say, oh, ooh, there it is. It was always there. I just didn't see it revealed. That will be true, I think, of the second coming as well. That will be true of much prophecy. And I think sometimes we agonize about the prophecy we don't understand rather than to say, God concealed it. Why do you think you got wheels within wheels and all that stuff in Revelation that none of us understand? Could it possibly be that we weren't meant to understand the mysteries Maybe we were just supposed to understand the big ideas. Jesus Christ is coming again. And he wants to find his people faithful when he does. God has the right to conceal as well as to reveal. Try this emphasize. God is the ultimate multitasker. 
You know, it's very interesting. In the early computer days that I was in, hey, it was great to have my computer doing one thing at a time. And now, you know, we got them out there and it's working on this and that, and doing all these things at one time, and we think, ah, oh, this is really cool. Isn't it interesting that in the way our Lord dealt with this crowd, he's dealing with the crowd, he's dealing with the ones who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and who will never be saved. He's dealing with his disciples, one of which is an unbeliever. And yet everything that he has purposed to accomplish is being accomplished at one time. The parables are achieving God's purposes for the disciples, for the crowds, for the opponents. They're achieving God's purposes. Sometimes I think... We believe that God is a single tasker and that somehow in order to fulfill his purposes and promises to us, it has to shortchange somebody else. It's just not true. God is achieving every one of his tasks, every one of his purposes at the same time by means of the parables that we're given. I think the ultimate question is not what do we not know, but what do we know? Or, put differently, what are we doing with what we know? See, Jesus says that's the key to knowing anything in the future. To the one who has, more will be given. To the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. In Matthew 25, that's given to us in the, in the sense of fruit, fruit-bearing, because of the, those who are given the stewardship of a certain amount uh, of means, and those who take that and make use of it and have growth and fruit from that, it says they get more. The one who has hidden it away is the one whom the master says, take even what he has away from him. So the question for us is not what do we not know, it's what do we know. And what are we doing with what we know? That, I believe, is the key to knowing more. God doesn't pour out all of his secrets for those who are poor stewards of what they already know. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for uh, not only this power, but his wisdom. Thank you for the parables, not because they always make the truth clearer, but because they conceal what you choose to conceal until the proper time. And while we know that the disciples must have scratched their heads too at the things they heard, we know that in due time, the things that you told them privately, the Spirit would enable them to recall and to understand and to record for us. But Father, you've given us truth, uh, and many of us know far more than other people have been privileged to know around the world about your word. We pray that you would help us to take what you have given to us, to embrace it, to obey it. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his death. Thank you for orchestrating these events in a way that assured that he would die in the proper way and at the proper time. Thank you that judgment has fallen upon him so that we may experience your blessings. If there's anyone here who has not yet trusted in him, may they acknowledge their sin 
And may they trust in the sacrifice that he has made in their behalf in Jesus' name. Amen.